Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, welcome back to This One's a Doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. We talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore of the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings-on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. You're getting really good at that. I know, I know. It's it's getting... Smooth. The repetition has really uh, helped straighten that out a little bit. Yeah. So Good for you. Yeah. You good know, for us. It is. It is what it is. It's good for everyone, really. Yeah. Our listeners benefit from that going well. So I, I think so. Yeah. And job. here we are with the 18th edition. Mm-hmm. The final episode before bonus episode, spooky season, mm-hmm. spectacular extravaganza month. That's right. Double episodes all October long. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm I've excited been working too. my buns off trying to come up with all of the stuff to make it really fun and to kind of blast into our first spooky month. Yeah. You know, kind of. With a splash. A big splash. Big, old big splash. splash of crazy stories. Mm-hmm. And I've only heard one of them so far. Yeah, we're so. starting off pretty chill at first to kind of like ease into it. Like yeah. I feel like the one that we've already gone through is pretty chill, but mm-hmm. it's still very fascinating. I'm excited to share what I've been working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm excited. And uh, yeah, I think this is going to be a really, really fun month for yeah. our listeners and for us. Yeah, for sure. So... Well, why don't we start off with the time-tested, age-old question. Mm. What are you drinking? I went to the old gas station and picked me up a large soda pop. Nice. I offended everybody with that because I called it soda and pop. That's good. That's good. That's are a you safe a soda bet. person or are you a pop person? Me? Yeah, oh, what do you say? I feel like I don't actually know what I say naturally because I'm not thinking about it when I am talking. Mm-hmm. I think I usually say pop. I feel like you usually say the name of the drink. Like you would That's rather true. say Coke than say, I'm going to go That's get true. A pop or soda. Yeah. I'm going to go get a Sprite. Yeah. Go get a Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Or I just say a drink. <laughs> it's going to be really vague. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super vague. Well, what are you drinking? Yeah. Well, tonight I am drinking Coca-Cola with French vanilla sugar-free flavoring from Tarani. Fancy pants. Right? Is that the brand? Tarani? I think so. I I think that's how you say it. I think that's how you say it. And then add a splash of old Captain Morgan white rum. Delish. And, uh, yeah. It is not assaulting my senses, so I'm I'm glad for that. Yeah. White rum's a little bit sweeter. Yeah. So it doesn't usually come come, uh, quite as aggressively as my other options. Doesn't come screeching in like your other drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, well, 
Well, dear, do you have a fun fact for us this week? I don't have a fun fact, but I have a feel-good fact. Well, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. <laughs> we, we don't do fun facts. We do feel-good facts. Yeah, we do. Every once in a while, so, we sneak in a fun one. Yeah, sometimes they're feel-good and fun, but yes. Bear with me, because okay. this one doesn't start feel-good, but it ends feel-good. Okay. When the IRS repossessed and auctioned off Willie Nelson's home in 1991, his fans came together, bought the property, and gave it back to him. Oh, Wow. Yeah. So obviously, IRS stuff isn't feel goody, but being a beloved figure with loyal fans who love you very much yeah. surely is. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. I th- I like I like that Willie Nelson. I feel like is one of the most beloved artists of all time. Just Probably a lot of people over like a long period of time. Yes, and crosses genres, even mm-hmm. though he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He sticks to the same kind of sound and scope, but everybody loves him regardless. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. So I love that. That is a feel good fact. Yeah. It's a nice one. It, it, you know, started out rough in the first half. I mean, you mentioned the IRS at all and it's like automatically like how, Mirror. how feel good could this possibly be? It's a testament to sometimes things are really hard, mm-hmm. but when you've got people in your corner, it'll be all right. Yeah. So. It'll be all right. Yeah. All right, love. Well, you've got a, a another story for us this week. I sure do. And uh, I don't know anything about this except for this is episode eighteen. So and that I've been mad about it. And for that the you've last been, week you have that been, I've been mad. putting it together. Yes, yeah. your emotions have been. Yeah, this hasn't been as fun and exciting as other ones. You've been more grumpy. Yeah, for good reason. Yeah. I feel like this is a really important one, though. So okay. I'm I'm excited to share it. So it is another true crime case this week. Uh, It's hard to know where to even begin with even introducing this story. Hmm. So from the crimes themselves to the investigation, to the sentencing and the fallout, this one is weird and frustrating, but very worth talking about. Okay. So in today's story, we've got one man with two wives. Oh. Married at different times, but one went missing. And then three years later, the second was found dead. Hmm. So what happened to these women? Was it bad luck, as the husband called it, or was it something much, much worse? Hang on, Kev. This one is a doozy. Okay, let's go. All right. In 1991, a man by the name of Thomas Keir was at the center of Australian media. He appeared emotional and sympathetic to anyone casually observing his plight. As he made pleas with the Australian people to find and punish his second wife's murderer, he maintained both his grief and his innocence in the matter. But with the added detail that his first wife had gone missing and had allegedly, quote, run off with another man, people were immediately suspicious. Mm. So we're going to start with talking a little bit about Thomas's first wife, Jean Strachan. So Jean Angela Strachan was born to Christine and Clifford in 1966. Jean lived and grew up with her parents and her sister in the town of Blackett, which is in New South Wales, Australia. Jean was a really sweet kid. She was funny and witty. She had a bubbly and lively personality and was naturally gifted at making friends. Hmm. She made many friends as a child or young teenager that she kept close and dear all the way into her adulthood. She was also very beautiful. She had long, curly brown hair and warm brown eyes and a beautiful and contagious smile. She was also tall and athletic, excelling at sports, with basketball being one of her favorites. Hmm. So when Jean was 14 years old in the year 19, right right around 1980, she met Thomas Keir. 
Her mother, Christine, had actually worked for Thomas Kier in an upholstery factory called Freeport Furniture, which I'm pretty sure was in Blackhead as well. Hmm. So Christine and Thomas had a friendly relationship, but he took a special interest in Jean. Thomas had lived just down the street from the Strackens, and one morning he stopped by their home. He knocked on the door and Jean answered. When Thomas asked for her mom, she went and found Christine and let her know that a very ugly Frankenstein-looking man was at the door. (laughs) She was particularly put off by his one eyebrow across his head. Oh, man. Which, like, no shame in your unibrow game if that's your style, but Jean was not into it. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) So Thomas claimed that he'd stop by to have Christine work on repairing some cushions from home. It was a short exchange, and then he was on his way. The Strackens didn't think much about this exchange, but many believe this was just one stone in the wall of Thomas Kier's budding obsession with Jean. Hmm. As time went on, Christine would bring Jean to work with her from time to time, or Jean would stop by her mom's work with some friends when she got done with basketball practice. Whenever Jean was there, Thomas made sure to seek her out, sometimes even offering her pocket change as a sort of like, well done for helping out your mom kind Hmm. of offering. He'd give her candy or he'd offer her small jobs that she could do on her own time for pay. Like she made buttons for couch cushions. Hmm. Is that not uh, considered grooming right? Like right out of the gate? Uh, yes. Okay. It is. Um, I'm going to get into... She's underage at this point still? She's a young teenager. Yes. Yeah. And he, as we will find out here in a minute, Jean was 15 at this time mm-hmm. and Thomas was 23. Yeah. That's, that's old enough to be creepy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I think an eight year age gap Mm -hmm. between them. So that's an immediate red flag for me, but Christine and the rest of the Strackens really saw Thomas as harmless and kind of sympathetic. He never seemed to get any attention from women and it didn't seem like he had many, if any friends at all. He was just kind of like quiet and awkward, but they believe that he was a nice guy who maybe lacked a little bit in social skills. Hmm. So the family kind of, I don't know, em- not totally embraced him, but they were like, okay with his presence. Cause they kind of sure. felt bad for him. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So the friendship progressed and Thomas eventually asked Jean's dad, Cliff, if he could take Jean to the movies. Cliff felt a little weird about it, but he told Thomas that he could take Jean if he also took her siblings and Christine, her mother, to which Thomas happily agreed. This sort of routine of Jean and her sister Heather, and sometimes even Christine going with Thomas to the movies or for fun little outings, continued on. When Jean turned 16, Thomas showed up at her home with 16 roses, a bottle of champagne that he gifted to Christine, and a case of beer that he gifted to Cliff. Thomas Hmm. would repeat this on Jean's birthday in the coming years, adding an additional rose for each year. Eventually, Cliff reluctantly gave Thomas permission to court Jean. I say reluctantly because Cliff never really did like or trust Thomas. Mm -hmm. He just kind of thought it was weird that he was paying so much attention to his young daughter, which, as you said, she was being groomed straight up. She was being groomed right under their noses. And Christine really believed the best. Cliff wanted to be supportive of everybody being happy about this Mm -hmm. whole thing. And it's it goes to show how sneaky and how tricky these things can be and how like layered and tangled up these things can get really fast. Yeah. It's also very odd that he he's called a ugly Frankenstein looking man mm-hmm. and that the 16 year old pretty girl would actually mm-hmm. be interested in that. There's a lot of weird going on already. So here it goes though. It's weird because he made her feel special. 
Right. Or I guess it's not weird because he made her feel special. Right, right. yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah. over time, at first she was like, who's that ugly dude? Right. And eventually it turned into, we spend a lot of time together with my family. That feels safe because mm-hmm. my mom already knows him and we're all together. Right. And it's supervised. Nothing, you know, shady's happening. It. Yeah, that's a good it's point. It's just a very sort of undercover slide Mm-hmm. into what is going to unfold later. I feel so bad for her family. Oh, I feel man. so bad for her family. So, all right, let's keep moving. Yeah. When Thomas would stop by, Cliff would often find an excuse to leave because he didn't even really like being around Thomas. Hmm. But from what he did see, he believed that Thomas and Jean did make each other happy. So even though he didn't love their relationship, he gave Thomas permission to court Jean. So this was around the time that Jean was 17 years old. Hmm. Not long after this, the two came to Christine and Cliff and let them know that they were planning on getting married, flashing a ring that Thomas had given to Jean. By the time she was 18, any concerns that her parents had were sort of squashed because she was an adult Mm -hmm. and they both trusted Jean and Thomas. Little flickers of unhealthiness would start popping up around this time. A few of these instances include Thomas asking Christine to make alterations to Jean's clothes so that her clothes would cover more of her skin, hmm. which is weird. And then there was a time that the two went to a dance together and they got into a fight because Thomas didn't want her dancing with anyone else, not even her friends. Hmm. So at age 18, Jean announced to her loved ones that she was pregnant and that the wedding day would be happening soon. And this is where things continue getting strange. Yeah, okay. Christine recalled that on Jean's wedding day on August 11th, 1984, instead of spending the morning joyfully getting ready to marry the love of her life, she spent the morning as a crying, shaking mess. Christine wondered if these were normal nerves, sort of combining with pregnancy hormones, or if there was something else going Mm. on. Was Jean safe? Was her behavior on the morning of the wedding indicating something else that maybe they had missed? Oh, geez. Unfortunately, we will never have answers to those questions, but her mom chalked it up to it being wedding jitters. Sure. After their wedding day, Jean and Thomas bought a home in the Wilkes Crescent community of Tregear, New South Wales, which is a little suburb of Sydney. The marriage started off pretty normally, and soon after they were settled into their home, on December 31st, 1984, their son Michael was born. Their marriage continued, and for the next few years, it sounds as if the relationship was steadily growing into a pretty violent storm for the Kears. Oh, no. In December of 1987, Jean dropped a bombshell. She'd been having an affair with a man by the name of Carl Needing. Hmm. She told Thomas that she was sorry and that she didn't mean for it to happen, but with the way that their marriage had been, she had just sort of been swept up in the heat of a moment. It goes without saying that Thomas was furious. Mm-hmm. He blasted out the door, into the car, and off toward the town of Bondi where Carl lived, vowing to beat the living daylights out of him on sight. Mm. When he saw that Carl was notably larger and likely <laughs> much stronger than he was, though, Thomas changed gears. Instead of fighting Carl, maybe he could win him over to his side, so to speak. Mm. In short, he played the sympathy card. He asked Carl to please stop seeing his wife and asked him if he minded telling Jean that she should just go work things out with her husband. Oddly enough, Carl went along with it. Wow. By February of 1988, things between Jean and Thomas were so bad that Jean had communicated with her parents that she needed a minute away to sort of regroup and figure out what the next steps were. She went to go stay with her sister for a few days, 
but Thomas was quickly over this. On February 10th, 1988, Thomas drove to Jean's sister's home, I believe it was Heather's home, and literally dragged Jean kicking and screaming to the car and brought her home. Oh, geez. Yeah. Oh, man. Why? Why? That just seems, I mean, I guess there's there's already a broken trust because of the affair. Mm-hmm. Like, I can understand, like, being a little antsy about, mm-hmm. like, I don't want this to go on too long because she's already cheated on me once, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, and yet I'm kind of like, my dude, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you're kind of the problem. Yeah. This is why it's happening. Yeah. You need to back off. So, right. ugh, man, that's right. hard. That's that's just in the very small scope that I have right now. Obviously, yes. there's going to be way grander problems over the course of the rest of this story. I'm sure I can see that. But just just the small scope that I have, I'm like, I can understand and sympathize with his feelings um, and his fears. And yet it's like I can already see like where the problem is actually started is yeah. with him. So. so I will get into a lot more detail about what went on in their marriage later on. Hmm. Um, but for now, let's just keep going. Let's just do that. Yeah. So at some point after she'd been brought home from her sister's home, it was either right before or right after she did go see Carl again. And we'll talk more about, about mm. that later too. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, that's a little complicated, but we'll get into that later, too. Okay. So a few days had passed, and nobody had heard from Jean. She always kept in regular communication with her family and closest friends, even though the last several months had been difficult for her. Friends and family had all noted that Jean had looked tired and that she'd become increasingly withdrawn, and that the conversations they'd been having with her were becoming pretty dark and heavy. Mm. It was straight up not like her, though, to not reach out or return any missed calls. When asked where she was, Thomas broke the news to Jean's parents that she'd run off with another man that she'd been having an affair with. Not Carl. It's a different guy. Mm. He told them that she'd taken some clothes and jewelry and makeup and just left. He was heartbroken, but it seemed like she was happy, so he let her go. She would call Mm. him from time to time to check in on Michael, but that was the end of it. Now, understandably, her family didn't buy it, but they had to accept it, at least for a short time. Right. This would be, luckily, very short-lived. On May 1st, 1988, Christine filed an official missing persons report for Jean. She just didn't believe that Jean would leave for this long without contacting anyone besides Thomas, and she most definitely would not leave Michael behind. Yeah. The missing persons report was handed around kind of it changed hands a little bit and eventually landed in the hands of detective Peter Seymour in 1989. He skimmed the report and chatted with his partner, Mick Lyons of the Mount Druitt police department. Hmm. There was a note in the file stating that it's believed that Jean Cure had run off with another man, leaving her husband and young son behind. Soon after they were given the file, Seymour and another officer would go follow up with the husband of the missing woman. They made a few attempts to visit the husband at the home that he'd once shared with his wife in Tregear, but he either wasn't home or didn't answer for the first few times that they tried to make contact. Oh, okay. Eventually, Thomas did answer. He informed Detective Seymour that his wife had left about a year ago with another man. She would occasionally call to check in on their son, and that was the end of the conversation, and for a short while, the end of the investigation into the whereabouts of Jean Keir. Hmm. That is until two years later in 1991. 
Detective Seymour got a call about a house fire and a deceased body found at the scene. He was called to 18 Wilkes Crescent in Tregear. He thought that the address sounded familiar, and sure enough, when he pulled up, it was the Kier house. So, content warning, I'm about to describe a crime scene. So, when Detective Seymour arrived on the scene, there was a small crowd of onlookers trying to see what was going on. He approached one of his partners to get a rundown of what was going on before entering the home. He was informed that there was a deceased female in the main bedroom of the home and that she was burnt so badly that she was unrecognizable. Whoa. She had also had the cord from the bedside lamp wrapped around her neck. Oh. Yes. Detective Seymour was immediately sad. We found Jean. What a terrible ending to a missing persons case. But when he mentioned that to Detective Lyons, he was met with a confused face. Lyons informed him that the body inside belonged to Thomas Keir's wife. He had been married only for a short period of time, but the woman he was married to was not named Jean. Her name was Rosalina. Oh my gosh. Quote, we now have a dead second wife and a missing first wife. We've got a huge problem here, said Detective Seymour, and he could not have been more right. Wow. The next step was to interview potential witnesses, and as luck would have it, one of the Kier's neighbors witnessed the fire. This neighbor, Max Wormleton, uh, gave a statement saying that he had seen Thomas Kier walk into the home, and then he saw him leave a few minutes later. Within 10 to 15 minutes, he saw smoke billowing out of the home. Initially, he wasn't too concerned when he saw smoke because it wasn't uncommon for Thomas to burn stuff in his yard. We'll get more into that in a minute. So once Max realized that the fire was coming from inside of the home, he ran over, worried that little Michael might be trapped inside. He and another neighbor ran to the home and tried calling out to see if anyone was still inside, but the doors to the home were all locked. Hmm. Max's wife quickly came over with the hose that they had used to try to put the fire out, but it was no use. After only a few minutes since the flames first became noticeable, the back window exploded from the inside. Fire Brigade came by a few minutes later and doused the flames. Max also made note that he'd lived next door to the Kiers for six years and that Thomas was an odd guy. He also mentioned that his daughter Lisa was friends with Jeannie, which was a commonly used nickname for Jean. Hmm. He said that it was a shame that she'd run off, but he believed that maybe it was for the best because in the months leading up to her leaving, she didn't look or behave like herself. So maybe she's happier now. Police thanked him for his time and went in to the home to continue the investigation. Hmm. So the mention about the back window exploding immediately sort of piled up the assumption that this wasn't an accidental fire, but rather a case of arson. Yeah. This is because the window would only explode and flames would only get that hot that quickly if some sort of accelerant was used. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, the inside of the home reeked like gasoline. This was definitely arson. Wow. So Rosalina's body was removed from the home and was autopsied. And we'll talk about the results of the autopsy in a minute. But first, I want to talk just a little bit about Rosalina. So apologies in advance. I'm so bad with names. But Rosalina Cecilia Canonizado, or Rosalie, was born in August of 1966, the same year as Jean. She was a beautiful woman who'd spent most of her time in the Philippines with her family. She had dark hair, brown eyes, and a beautiful smile. She was also a gifted student. She'd graduated from Polytechnic University with her bachelor's degree in accounting, and her graduation gift from her parents was a trip to Sydney, where she would go on vacation and attend a family wedding that took place in 1988. Wow. It was at this wedding that Rosalie was introduced to Thomas Keir 
by Christine Strachan, Jean's oh, mother. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. It turns out that Rosalie and Jean were distant cousins. Hmm. <laughs> what a small world. Wow. Such a small world. And I hate that so much. Same here. So does everybody. Yeah. So from what I gathered, Christine was trying to play matchmaker for Thomas in hopes that maybe this could help quell the grief over Jean leaving him. It's also assumed that she was wanting to help him out and sort of like get him connected with someone who could maybe eventually become a sort of mother figure Mm -hmm. to Michael, who was just a little guy at the time. Right. So from what I gathered, this wedding and the introduction of Rosalie to Thomas happened before the missing persons report was filed, but I'm not totally positive. So don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. It was around the same time frame. Yeah. The timing, the timing seems to be. It was quick, quickly after Jean had gone missing. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, um, Jean's mom. What was her name again? Christine. Christine. Yes. Um, It's almost like Christine was still kind of like juggling two different sides of of emotions. Like on one hand, she wants what's best for her grandson and for her son-in-law. And also maybe a little bit of a fear of like, this. who is this guy? Mm -hmm. Why is my daughter missing and only talking to him? And, you know, like, people are more complicated than we'd like to assume they are. Right. Where she's dealing with a lot of complicated emotions and Mm -hmm. having to kind of balance that well. So she's maybe just trying to connect him with somebody that she knows that she'll always have a connection to as well. Mm -hmm. So that maybe there'll be some more loose ends tied up for her. And, you know, I'm obviously speculating a lot right now but sure. <laughs> trying to put yourself in someone's shoes that's in this sort of situation in the 80s mm-hmm. you know the cultural not I'm, I'm obviously not saying that this was the best decision ever uh but i also don't want to villainize the wrong people here. right so I, right. I, i'll talk more about that later too okay Okay, so by the end of 1988, Thomas had flown out to the Philippines with Rosalie and met her family, which must have gone well, because by 1989, Rosalina and Thomas were married. Hmm. The two decided to move into a home together with Michael in Sydney, but not in the home that Thomas had previously shared with Jean. Not yet, at least. So while they were in their first shared home, Thomas was renting out the Wilkes Crescent house in Tregear to bring in some extra money at the beginning of 1990. The tenants of the home wouldn't stay there long, however. They had been interviewed by police at some point, and they informed police that from the time they first moved in, they'd noticed a pretty terrible smell, almost like rotten meat, coming from somewhere inside of the home. Hmm. They also noted that their dog would often come inside after being in the yard, and the dog would have things like bones or clumps of hair in its mouth. Oh. Some time had passed... And they were not able to pinpoint the source of the smell, so they moved out. And then Thomas, Rosalina, and Michael moved back in to that home shortly after that. Hmm. On the money side of things, Rosalie was working two jobs and had given Thomas a chunk of cash that he used to start his own upholstery business. So she got stuff done. She was, by all accounts, a wonderful and loving stepmother to Michael, and Michael very much loved her right back. Hmm. From the outside looking in, this appeared to be the beginning of a happily ever after story, but things are not always as they appear to be, unfortunately. Oh, man. 
So police obviously first needed to talk with Thomas about what he knew and what his whereabouts were at the time of the fire and Rosalina's death. Thomas and Michael had been out and about, stopping at a few shops in Tregear that day. They'd stopped at home, which is what the neighbor, Max Wormleton, had seen. He ran inside, and then he and Michael had left again. He had receipts and items in his vehicle that indicated that at some point in the day he'd been at the shops, but this didn't rule out the fact that he was most likely the last person to see her alive. Yeah. Like, there's no way that he'd gone inside, Rosalina was alive and well, and then within 15 minutes of him leaving the home and the neighbors noticing the fire, someone else broke into the locked home, <laughs> strangled her, and then started a fire. Right. Police, and then locked it back up. And then locked, yeah. Yeah, the note about the doors being locked was very compelling to mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. So police had also noticed when they were talking to him that he had a deep scratch on the side of his neck. And it looked like it could have been made as like a self-defense wound, yeah. perhaps by Rosalina, if she was, in fact, fighting for her life. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So let's talk about the findings of the autopsy done on Rosalina. The most compelling finding was that there was no soot or smoke in Rosalina's lungs, meaning that her cause of death was not related to the fire. Right. Instead, the cause of her death was ruled as strangulation. Yeah. She was dead at the time that the fire started. So on the very day of her death, Thomas Keir was arrested and charged with her murder. Over the course of the next two years, Mount Druitt police would work as hard as they could to build a strong case against him. One frustrating aspect about this is that much of the evidence, though it was strong, was mostly circumstantial. Oh, man. They also sought to find out for sure if Thomas had anything to do with Jean's disappearance as well. Yeah. They recalled a particularly interesting detail that they were given by a neighbor during the time that they were conducting interviews with potential witnesses to Rosalina's murder. One of the neighbors had informed them that they had regularly seen Thomas digging holes and burying things in his yard. Things like car parts, big concrete blocks, and a large 44-gallon metal drum were a few things that the neighbor claimed to have witnessed Thomas burying. Oh, weird. This is also odd because it's not like he had a huge piece of property. They lived in, like, the suburbs. Yeah. So police were eventually able to access a warrant that allowed them to search Thomas's house and the property surrounding his house. Yeah, yeah. In April. Yeah. This was in April of 1991. They would begin inside of the house, and then the first of many digs on the property would follow. The primary goal of the first dig was to locate that 44-gallon drum. They thought that it was possible that Jean's remains could have been hidden inside of the drum. It's interesting that the neighbor had given this specific tip because during his questioning, Thomas admitted to burying things in his yard and he listed them out, but not one time did he bring up the metal drum. That seems like Mm. too large of an item to accidentally forget about. He was very specific with the ones that he gave. Yeah. So they started out by kind of sectioning off the yard and using crowbars to break ground but they quickly realized that this would be way too meticulous to do Mm. it this way. So they brought in proper digging equipment. This allowed them to pretty quickly dig through the property uh, and to a depth of around six feet. They found plenty of buried items like the car parts and concrete blocks and other things that Thomas had mentioned, but they were not able to locate the drum. Mm. They found nothing related to Gene in any way. So they were obviously frustrated. Yeah. But this would be the moment that they would be given another tip that would keep the case moving. 
Detective Seymour had been told by officers in the prison where Kier was awaiting trial that two other inmates had been given some relevant information in Jean's case. On the 30th of April, they went to talk with one of the inmates who was willing to offer up information in exchange for a favor for himself. The inmate, Brian Riley, said that Kier had told him and another inmate that he had killed Jean and buried her upright under his home. He included some other information that Thomas had shared with him, and that information lined up with the statements that Thomas Kier had given to police in regards to Jean's disappearance, and it was not information that was available to the public. Oh. So in other words, there's no way Riley would have known this stuff unless Thomas Kier had told it to him. So this information allowed police to perform another dig at Thomas Kier's home. Hmm. They began by digging right in the center of the home. So for some time, at least, homes in Australia would be constructed on brick piers or columns Mm -hmm. rather than a solid concrete foundation. So there would be like gaps between the piers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they assumed that maybe she's been wedged like upright between some of these columns. So that's where they started. They actually removed floorboards of the home and then dug underneath to continue their search. Yeah. So shortly into the second dig, somehow Thomas was able to post bail while he was still awaiting trial for Rosalina's murder. He was aware of the dig happening at his home, and he had no comment for police when they asked him how he felt about this part of the process. A few days into the dig, investigators found a small bone under the house. It was found about 18 inches down, and though it was small, and even though some of the investigators thought that it looked like a chicken bone— they still bagged it up and sent it off for analysis. Mm -hmm. Over the course of the next few days, six more bones were found. In the middle of their discovery of the other bones, it was confirmed that the first one that they had sent off to be analyzed was, in fact, a human finger bone. Oh, my gosh. So that's all they had. Seven bones, including finger bones, a thumb bone, a wrist bone, and a patella. Seven bones. Wow. The next step was to send all of the bones off for further analysis, hopefully being able to match them with someone. For this part, they actually sent the bones, the blood type information from Jean's medical records, as well as DNA samples from Christine and Cliff to America, because at this time, Australia wasn't quite as advanced in Mm. DNA forensics as the U.S. was. So this would turn out to be an achingly long, drawn-out process. So we will talk about the results of the U.S. DNA testing later. Mm-hmm. I keep postponing everything, but I'm building towards <laughs> I see something. see what you're doing, yeah. Okay, so the working theory at this point was that Thomas killed Jean and then buried her body under the home. This would account for the bad smell that the previous tenants had smelled, mm-hmm. along with the possibility that the dog had snuck its way under the home and messed with the remains. They theorized Mm -hmm. that before he and Rosalina moved in, or potentially at one point during his time that he was renting out the home, he removed Jean's body and put the remains into the 44-gallon drum and then took the drum somewhere else, accidentally forgetting some of the scattered bones underneath the home. It's worth noting that the investigators performed a third dig at the Kier house just so that they could be as thorough as possible to make sure that there weren't more remains underneath the house. This yielded no results, but they were able to determine that in 1990, around the time that Thomas and Rosalina were moving back into the home, he had replaced the floorboards directly above where they had found the bones. Oh, wow. 
Thomas was actually there for this dig and he just sort of like awkwardly stood there and watched them as they like ripped up his floorboards and dug around his yard. I know that's wow. not really like that important of a detail. I just thought it was weird. It is so weird. Like just the visual of him standing there knowing they're not going to find much of anything, mm-hmm. but like still watching, still wanting to be there to see it is like very like, that's very super villainy, you know? It makes me think of like the serial killers or the murderers that inject themselves into investigations mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Like they'll join a search party or something like that. Or they'll yep. like show up to a town hall meeting or something and ask a question. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Like not quite as like dastardly, but yeah. like close. Oof. That's why I included that. Yeah. The I didn't include this, but I remembered it. So they the police investigators had done a search to see if Jean at any point during the time that she was missing had reached out for any sort of like financial aid. Mm. Okay. Either locally or like on a bigger scale. And she had not. So like no Medicaid, no like food assistance or anything like that. Being the fact that she was a single woman by herself running away to who knows where. And that she had no resources. That's Mm -hmm. a little bit not believable. Yeah. If that makes sense. the, The odds of a woman like that totally ditching everybody in her life. Mm hmm. And then not getting any other support from anybody except for this supposed mystery man. Mystery man, like honestly, that's like that would be just as creepy mm-hmm. to know that he ran. She ran off with this guy that no one else knows, and we're not going to hear from her ever again. Mm-hmm. That's just as bad, right? You know, like everyone should be concerned about that. Or so even even if it's not just as bad, it's just as unlikely. And just as out of character for her, you know? Yeah. So crazy. Okay, next let's talk a little bit about Thomas Keir's trial for the murder of Rosalina. It was finally underway in the early months of 1993. So like I said before, the prosecution did have a ton of evidence that they planned to present at the trial. But unfortunately, a lot of it was circumstantial. Hmm. Even so, they were ready for the trial and they were certain that they had enough compelling evidence to secure a guilty conviction and give Rosalina's loved ones some closure. The trial was hard. Rosalina's loved ones would share that she had confided in them that her marriage to Thomas was very all-encompassing and that she was beginning to feel trapped. Hmm. They felt as though she'd been sort of duped into the relationship to begin with. Rosalina was young and eager for love and adventure. They believed that just about anyone could have swept her off of her feet while she was away in Sydney. It just so happened that the man who managed to actually do so was not good or kind towards her. Mm. He was also her first boyfriend ever. Oh, gosh, I hate that. I just think about the decisions that we make when we're young Mm -hmm. and, you know, if we're looking for a relationship and somebody gives us that validation how quickly you can just fall right in love. Right. And with no family, no like immediate family near her, she's in a foreign place. Right. And she meets this guy who is so sweet and he, you know, they feel connected right away. Mm. It makes so much sense that it was such a quick and fast sort of union. Yeah. And I really empathize with where she was at at the time that they had met and got married. Mm. I really do. 
So let me keep moving here. They also mentioned that Rosalina had told them that she wasn't allowed to go anywhere by herself. She wasn't allowed to wear clothing that Thomas felt was too revealing and that he was very possessive and impulsive. Her relationship with her other family had also become strained before her death. There was just a lot of heaviness and sadness in the details of Rosalina's final years, and it all centered around Thomas and how he treated her, which is so frustrating. Gosh, I hate that so much. I hate this guy. The prosecution also informed the court that Thomas was set to collect on an $80,000 life insurance policy that he'd taken out on Rosalina. Thomas's defense presented all of their relevant evidence as well. Their real hinge point was that it couldn't definitively be proven that Thomas was the only possible suspect. That in the 15 minutes between Thomas leaving in his vehicle and the start of the fire, theoretically someone could have snuck in, unseen, killed Rosalina, doused the home in gas, and set it on fire in order to conceal any evidence that they'd been there at all. Mm-hmm. This was all that was needed to plant tiny seeds of doubt in the minds of the jury. This slim chance that it wasn't Thomas Cure, despite all of the available evidence pointing directly at him, circumstantial or not. Much to the shock of Rosalina's family, the prosecution, and everybody who was invested in this case, Thomas Cure was found not guilty in the murder of Rosalina Cure and was acquitted on all charges. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to tell you all about this book at the end, but as I'm reading this, it's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking. So Thomas's next order of business was honestly an embarrassing press junket. He gave interviews to any and all media outlets and tried to paint himself as the victim. He claimed that police had been out to get him from the start. He talked about his involvement in trying to find the actual murderer, stating that he'd put up a $50,000 reward for anyone who could present information leading to the arrest and conviction of the actual killer. And he said that no matter what the police tried to do, they'd never get him because he didn't do it. Mm Mm-hmm. What? You're never going to get me. You're not like, I think he was maybe wondering if there was going to be like a fresh trial or if at some point they were going to try and bring different charges against him. Yeah, that's a weird way to say that though. It's very weird. Like, He's just a weird know. little man. So he also told the media that he knew who killed Rosalina, but he wouldn't tell anyone, especially not police who it was. Oh, that's messed up and weird. And that makes you an Look accessory. guilty. Yeah. So guilty. <laughs> at worst, you know who did it and you won't tell because you're what? evil like <laughs> yes for real that's like dude what's your what's wrong with you Ugh. i feel like that statement yeah. the rest of it's annoying and frustrating yes it's almost like weird gloating yes. but then that last thing i know who it was but i'm not telling is such garbage i can't even believe it like mm. just gross like do you, did you love her at all did did you love her yeah. at all because if you did any sensical person who loves someone who's the victim of a violent crime, especially a violent death, would do anything and everything they could to right. properly put them to rest and like right. give everyone who loves that person closure. Right. That's normal. It's- or to be like so shut down by your grief that like you can't really interact very well with the public or whatever for a period of time. Like right. that also makes sense to me, but the crap that he pulled is just so frustrating. I can't even stand it. 
Yeah. It just all seems very um, arrogant. Mm-hmm. And okay. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Like, go if you were actually grieving and mourning, mm-hmm. you would just go and grieve and mourn. Like, right. instead, he went out to be a celebrity, it sounds like, which yeah. is weird. That's a weird way to want to be famous. Yeah. But all right, keep on going. All right. So, years would pass with little movement in Gene's case. It wouldn't be until 1997 that the bone fragments that had been sent to the United States would be examined. They underwent DNA testing at the United States Armed Forces DNA Identification Testing Lab located in Rockville, Maryland, after tons of back and forth and many passing years. Mm. The blood samples that had been taken from Christine and Cliff were determined to be a match for the bones, meaning that the bones could be positively identified as belonging to offspring of the Strakens, meaning that the bones belonged to Jean Angela Keir. Yeah. This was huge. With this information, Thomas Keir was arrested and charged with Jean's murder on February 20th, 1998, more than 10 years after Jean had gone missing. Wow. 10 years. Well, and he has a son now Mm -hmm. who who has not had a mom Mm -hmm. in that long. Mm -hmm. And who I'm sure at this point in his life, like, doesn't think much of my daddy got arrested once. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's probably not someone that, I mean, or it is his entire identity. And he's like... He's very traumatized by yeah, it. Who, like, I, I hope know. Michael's okay. He's not that much older than us. It's yeah. crazy to think about. That's crazy to think about. Like, if I could put myself into Michael's shoes, everything that that poor guy has gone through yeah. is just so awful. I really mm-hmm. feel for him. Yeah. Okay, so within another year and a half, the trial for the murder of Jean would begin in August of 1999 at the Darlington Supreme Court. Based off of testimony given by friends and family of Jean throughout the investigation, police were able to piece together a lot of the presumed sort of like chain of events that had led to Thomas killing Jean. So content warning here, we're going to get into some distressing talk about domestic violence. Oh, man. Even though most of what I'm going to describe in this next bit primarily focuses on verbal and emotional abuse, that abuse is valid. And so I want to give anyone who might be triggered by those sorts of things the opportunity to skip forward if Mm -hmm. they need to. So Jean was essentially groomed by Thomas from the age of 14. We already got into that. The parents saw the best in Thomas. They saw that he made Jean happy. So they were supportive of her in that way. The two got married when Jean was 18. As the next couple of years would pass, things would take a dramatic turn for Jean and Thomas. On several occasions, friends and family would witness a very unhealthy dynamic between the two play out. I sort of teased this at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But the once meek and polite Thomas that many members of Jean's family had grown to love turned into a controlling, possessive, and jealous character. His jealousy was so deep and twisted that it's alleged that he would even get jealous of Jean's relationship with Michael. Oh, weird. Christine said that if Michael would reach over and like put his hand on his mom's chest because she's like snuggling her baby, Thomas would get angry and pull Michael's little baby hand away from his mother, saying it was inappropriate for him to touch her there. Even though he was a baby. Oh, yeah. He was resting his hand on his mom. That's so dumb. So gross. This guy needs serious help. Jean had told Christine that Thomas would get jealous if Michael would hug her or if literally anybody would hug her. 
He'd get straight up mad at Jean and start a fight with her or just give her the silent treatment, sometimes for days on end, if she upset him. Her family only has one picture of Jean and Michael together because Thomas destroyed all of the other ones. His reasoning being that in every other photo of Jean and their son, Jean was just trying to, quote, show off her bum. So he destroyed pictures of Michael and his mother. Dude, what is this guy on? It's so, so, I'm telling you, I'm reading through all these things. Yeah. All the testimony from her family and her friends. And I'm just sitting on the couch crying because it's so mean and so sad. And outrageously paranoid what 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 level of paranoia do you have to have to think that like all of those things are automatically like problems with her you know like i guess we're just maybe like too reasonable (laughs) i don't know but like my mind does not go to like you do all of these things and so therefore you're the problem Like, like my first gut is to, if I have an issue with you more than one or two, I go, maybe I'm being nitpicky. Maybe, maybe the problem is actually me. Right. And then I work that out, you know? So it's just, it's odd to me that you get an adult man who, who marries a girl that he groomed, who probably, you know, would never admit that he groomed her, but that's what he did. Mm-hmm. Like, I have a serious problem with this guy. Like, I had a, a problem with the first three minutes of this story. <laughs> right. Like, this guy's clearly an issue. Well, <sighs> his, like, complete inability to self-reflect is very evident yeah. in the testimony that his, or that Gene's family shared. Yeah. Extremely evident. It's very frustrating, very baffling, and completely unfair. Like, Jean was robbed of the experience of getting to be a young mom with a little baby. Hmm. And I think that that's one of, like, the saddest parts of this whole story. Right. Is how much, same with Rosalina, they were were robbed out of giving and receiving love. And, like, being accepted for who they were and how they were. You know, it's just, it's just really sad. So, possessive and jealous barely scratched the surface of this guy, in my opinion. Yeah. So testimony, specifically from friends, broadened this explanation of how Jean was shortly before she disappeared. They were all told all of the same things that Christine had been told, but with other, more chilling elements. Like when he would get mad at Jean, he'd say stuff like, quote, I'll cut you up and feed you to the dogs if you ever leave me or touch another man. Oh, man, dude. Cutting her up and feeding her to the dogs was a common threat that Thomas had made. One friend actually said that she'd heard Thomas say, quote, it's easy to dispose of a body. You cut the flesh off, feed it to the dogs, grind the bones down and use them as fertilizer, and then you burn the hair. So that's not good. That's not good. (laughs) They also said that not only had she lost weight, but the light and sparkle and zest for life faded too. The only bright spot in her life was her beloved son, Michael. Mm. And even that was being micromanaged and ripped apart by Thomas. So according to her friends and family, as I said earlier, she became increasingly withdrawn. And when she told them about her affair with Carl, they all actually encouraged her to stop having the affair so that she and Thomas could work things out. Mm. I feel like this is the right time to mention that family and friends 
all expressed regret and remorse for not helping Jean escape her marriage to Thomas. While they knew that they were having a hard time, I truly don't think any of them knew how serious the situation was. Right. I just want to wash away any guilt or shame that people tend to put on friends and family members of abuse victims and survivors and just let the full weight of responsibility rest on the shoulders of the abuser. Yeah. I just wanted to include that because that part of the of Jean's trial was very sad because they all are like, is this my fault? Mm. It's like, no, it's not. You didn't get how serious it was. Resources were very limited back then. Right. Conversations about domestic violence and the ins and outs of that were not regularly being had anywhere. Yeah. So it makes sense. It's it's not okay. It stinks that it happened that way. But this is Thomas's fault. Absolutely. This is all on Thomas. Well, and he spent all that time basically driving wedges between her and anybody that she could reach out to. Yes, the abuse was 100% systematic. Yeah. He can deny that all that he wants. Yeah. But that's how this stuff goes. Even if, let's... I'm sure you're going to keep on moving forward in this, but even if we were to assume for a moment that he did nothing to her and she did run off with somebody and then didn't reach out um, to anybody, (laughs) which I I laugh because it's just so outrageous of a thought to think. Mm -hmm. Um, Just with what little information we have about Jean as a person, it's completely outrageous to think she'd do that. But the reason that she would do that would be because of him. Right. Like he did all of the work to make it like, of course she's never going to reach out to anybody. You did that. Of mm-hmm. course she's going to run away from you. You did that. Of course mm-hmm. she's going to disassociate from everybody in her life that reminds her of her marriage to you. Right. You did that. Like, right. There's a lot to be said about a guy who uh, is just, abusive Mm -hmm. and won't let somebody be their own person. Mm -hmm. Like it, 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 yeah, I could, I could go on all day with different rants and rambles about it, but yeah, like it, it all, all roads point to Thomas, right? Regardless of what the outcome actually is, he would still be, uh, ground zero. Mm -hmm. Like the problem starts and ends right there. Right. Well, and one other thing that I want to include before we move on is that a lot of her friends did say, you need to get out of there. Mm -hmm. But she said, he has absolutely made it impossible for me to leave with Michael, and I'm not leaving Michael with him. So in her mind, she was just completely trapped. Yeah, She was just so trapped. And that's how these situations go. It's so hard to get out. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part about this story is this is one of the cases where no matter what she did, she was never safe. Yeah. And that's, it's just very heartbreaking. It's really sad. Okay. So let's keep going. After Jean went missing, Thomas had the same story that he'd shared with her loved ones that he would later share with police a few times over in interviews and statements that he gave to them. He gave a detailed rundown of her communications with him and Michael after she left, even recounting a few times that she'd come to their once shared home to collect different items that she needed. This story bought him time to do whatever it was that he was up to with her remains. Hmm. So Carl, Jean's ex-boyfriend also took the stand during the trial. He explained how they met the fear and frustrations that Jean had felt about her marriage to Thomas, 
Thomas's interactions with him and the fact that he drove her back to Thomas potentially on the night that she was killed. Wow. If it wasn't that night, it was sometime in the week leading up to it. So he felt a lot of unwarranted guilt as well. He didn't yeah. know. You know what I mean? It's it's crazy how many people are victimized in these situations. Mm-hmm. Everybody is now carrying that with them forever. Everybody's carrying unwarranted guilt. It's really, it's just tragic. Yeah. It really is. So testimony from the inmates in the prison, video footage of the digs conducted on the Cure property, and statements from investigators would be presented to a jury along with the biggest piece of evidence, the seven bones belonging to Jean Keir found under the home. Yeah. Finally, after weeks had passed, it was time for jury to deliberate. After only two short hours of deliberation, jury announced their verdict to the court. On September 17, 1999, Thomas Keir was found guilty of the murder of Jean Angela Keir. Good. Five months later, on February 29th, 2000, Thomas Keir was sentenced to 24 years in prison with possibility for parole after 18 years served. If he demonstrated good behavior, he would be eligible for parole in 2018. So this is where the story gets frustrating again. Uh Due to a technical error on the part of the court, Thomas was granted an appeal in 2002, which he hopped right on. Sure. I'm not spending a bunch of time on this part because it's honestly annoying and the whole thing was pointless and a waste of time. Mm. But what had happened was that the judge didn't fully explain to the jury how they should interpret the information regarding the bones and the DNA testing of the bones. At the end of the day, it wasn't anything that actually bore any weight in the guilty verdict at all, but it was still a technical error. So he was granted a retrial with a new jury judge and all of the relevant evidence. The second trial went underway then on September 17th, 2002, Thomas Keir was once again found guilty of the murder of Jean Keir. But that would not be the end of it. Mm, wow. Thomas would appeal for a third time because there was another error made with the jury. No way. He was granted the appeal and they went to trial again. Oh my gosh. This time with no jury, just a judge. <laughs> and once again, Thomas Keir was found guilty of the murder of Jean Angela Keir in 2004. His sentence would be upheld and he would continue serving his 24 years, but now he'd be eligible for parole in 2014. So while he was imprisoned, Thomas would undergo psychological evaluations that would determine that though he wasn't a danger to society at large, he was absolutely dangerous to any woman Mm -hmm. who he would form any sort of intimate relationship with. Yes. Particularly if this partner were to become unhappy or would attempt to break up with him or cease contact. Yeah. Obviously, right? For sure. But this didn't stop Thomas from applying for parole each and every time he was eligible. He was denied over and over until his release in October of 2019 with the contingency of a supervision order that stated that Thomas was not to pursue any romantic relationships for a period of time after his release. He moved into a halfway house and jumped into life as an upholsterer once again. Within weeks of his release... Thomas violated his supervision order and started pursuing a relationship with a woman who he'd met at a nude beach. Oh, my dude. Why? (sighs) Yeah. There's so many, there's so many things automatically wrong with that. Yeah. But like, dude, you just got out of prison. For a long time. Yeah. Like, you don't see any wisdom in just saying, maybe I shouldn't 
anyway for a while. Like maybe it's not good for me. Even if you want to take it yeah. from that angle, like yeah. maybe I should focus on me for a minute and Ugh. like, you know, getting used to being in the world again. Yeah. You know, Dude. so he'd been alone with this woman in her home on several occasions and would leave her little notes about how much he liked her and wanted to get to know her more, which sounds like grooming to me. Yeah. This landed him back in court in May of 2020, with the strongest argument against him being that not only did he breach his supervision requirements, but at no point at all in over 20 years has he taken any accountability or shown any remorse for any of his actions at any time. Oh, man. So in that same month, May of 2020, the judge ordered that Thomas adhere to his supervision order and laid out some more specific guidelines in an attempt to keep him in check. Mm. And this order would be extended for two additional years. I believe it was a three-year order. Mm -hmm. And this order has since expired. Oh, so now it's no longer in action. Right. The latest news on Thomas Cure comes from articles I read that were posted at the end of August of 2022. Okay, real fresh. Literally a month ago from the time that we're recording this. Yeah. So the overall consensus is that though his order is expired, many people, including the now retired detective Peter Seymour, believe that he still poses a significant risk if he's ever to become involved in a relationship. However, medical professionals who have looked over Thomas Keir's case only being allowed to consider his guilty conviction in Jean's murder, not Rosalie's because he was found sure. not guilty. Right. They believe that he's at moderate risk for reoffending. The trouble with this is that in order to have another extension on his supervision order, he would have to be deemed highly likely to reoffend by medical professionals. And since that isn't the case, Thomas Cure is a free man. Oof. Yeah, that's, Detective Seymour is uh, literally like, I guess I didn't talk a whole lot about the biography of Thomas Cure because honestly, I don't care. If I'm being honest, like, I don't care. But he was born in England, not Australia. Hmm. And Detective Seymour is like, deport him. We don't want him here. If you're not going to keep track of him, get him out of here. Right. Get him out of here. Inform England of his crime and the potential crime that he was linked to. And maybe they'll crack down on him since we won't. He's very frustrated by it. Hmm. Rightfully. Yeah. So the tragedy here is so deep and wide and layered and crisscrossed that it's hard to even know where to begin. We have two beautiful lives lost so young Mm -hmm. with Jean being 22 at the time of her death and Rosalina being 24 at the time of her death. We have Michael who lost both women who he loved as his mothers. Mm -hmm. He also lost his dad for all of his formative years. We have a potentially violent man walking the streets in New South Wales and everyone who could keep him on his best behavior have their hands tied and can't do anything about it at this point. We have all of the people who love and miss the women dearly. We have a guilty verdict in Jean's case, but to this day, there's been no justice for Rosalina. Hmm. I have a page that I stumbled upon while I was researching this case that's all about violence against Filipino women in Australia. And uh, Rosalina's case is one of the main ones featured. I'm going to be sure to link that so that everybody can look at it. It's super heartbreaking, but it's very compelling. And I think it's something we should all take the time to like learn about and care about. Um, I got most of my information for today's story from a book called Seven Bones that was written by Detective Peter Seymour. And it was co-authored by Jason K. Foster. Hmm. I'd just like to note that this case and, and these women absolutely consumed in the best way. Uh, Detective Seymour's 
inner thoughts. Hmm. When he's, this book is really well written. I really enjoyed reading it and I listened to portions of it. He very much wanted justice served. And I, I really appreciated the efforts that he made towards that. So I recommend everybody goes and reads Seven Bones. So I'm going to link that one. And I'm also going to link a few different United States resources that are aimed at helping victims of domestic violence here for anyone who may be in a situation that's Mm -hmm. unsafe. And for our non-United States listeners, please don't hesitate to message us on our socials or our email if you need help finding resources in your area as well. Mm -hmm. I feel like the overarching theme here is how deadly and poisonous domestic violence is and how scary of a trap it is. And I'm thankful that now there are more resources so that these sorts of stories can have better endings. Yeah. Um, But I just want to include that. And I thought this was a good time to talk about a really heavy, really hard story that really matters. So that's what I have for you this week. Yeah. Do you have for us um, even just one like um, resource that people can go to if they need help right now? Yeah. So right here, I have the phone number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. It's 800-799-7233. So you can call, chat, or go to the official website. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to make that connection via text message, you can text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. And I'll, I'll include a couple of other hotlines and websites that you can go to if you or somebody that you love might be in a dangerous situation. Yeah, that's good. So, okay. Yeah, that's Want to make sure and include that. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. Well, thank you to anybody who listened uh, today to the uh, unusual, unsettling, and unsavory story today. I don't even want to like rank this one, honestly, because yeah. it just... It, it gives me just so many like frustrated feelings and uh, yeah, just a lot of, a lot of complicated, frustrated, um, sad, angry, all sorts of feelings. So I'm not going to um, mm, personally, me neither. Um, but uh, it's an important story to share. Like you, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you are somebody who um, maybe the word isn't enjoyed, but you agree that this was an important story that you needed to hear or that you think others need to hear, mm-hmm. um, please make sure that you subscribe. Um, we do lots of different kinds of stories on this podcast and uh, semi-regularly they're important like this one. And so additionally, if you enjoy the podcast as a whole, please leave a five-star review and that does help other people um, who maybe have the same kind of mindset as you to find this podcast as well. Hopefully that gets them help or at least warns them ahead of time, like this sort of thing. Um, additionally, you can follow us on all of the social medias at this one is a doozy. Um, Facebook is a little different. That one is this one's a doozy podcast. And you can also email us. This one is a doozy at gmail.com. And uh, you can send us your personal stories there, your recommendations for stories for us to look into. And uh, we would love to hear from you just anything that you want to share as well on uh, the old Gmail. That's right. So, and that also leads us into, we've got a big October coming up. So if you have any thoughts, suggestions, anything like that, send them our, our way. And we also, I think we still need one or two more personal stories, yeah, right? We're at the point that we could fill an entire episode, but it'll be a short one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be really great to get 
as many more as we can. Honestly, if it's one that lasted a full hour or so, I wouldn't be mad about it. So yeah, people have crazy stories and I love to hear them. Yeah. So if you've got a crazy story, share. send it to us. I had one friend who said he doesn't like typing out the whole stories, but he might do like a voice memo. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh, so then we would just uh, transcribe that and, and read it ourselves. So yeah, I love we're, that. We're not sharing people's voices and all that, but right. um, <clears throat> I think you also wanted to make a mention of... Uh, maybe a little bit of a content filter for those sorts of things. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll talk more about this when we release our first listener edition of the show. But uh, since we are technically a clean podcast, we have received a lot of incredible stories that are told either like just extremely well, like I'm on the edge of my seat or they're like hilarious how they're told. <laughs> and a lot of that comes with some swears, which <laughs> be yourself. You send all of your messages, all of your stories, however you want to, uh, however feels true to you is fine with us. Yes. But in order to keep our clean rating with our hosting platform, <laughs> we're going to not fully censor, but change any and all swears to heck. Yes. Um, we thought that was a good compromise cause I don't want to change people's stories, but I also don't want to be out a hosting platform. So, right. right. So it'll be a heckin' good time. It's going to be a heckin' blast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll be funny about it. I promise. Yes, yes. We won't, we won't let it ruin anything. Yes. And we're not clutching our pearls. Share your stories from your heart exactly yeah. as you would tell it to us. That's so much better. Yeah. And then you can chuckle along when you hear us use the word heck. Yes. Because you'll know exactly what's going on. <laughs> That's right. Well, and our very first bonus episode comes out this Saturday, October 1st. Oh, so yeah. be looking for that. Oh, man. So exciting. I'm excited. You're excited. With that, we will see you next week for another doozy. We will see you Saturday we'll see for you another this doozy. Week for another doozy. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.